From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 1st. In Utah, the sport of golf has been under some recent scrutiny. Earlier this year, a state bill was proposed that would have mandated every golf course in Utah disclose how much water they use to irrigate each year. But it did bring up some questions about whether putting greens are a good use of our scarce water resources. KZMU's Emily Arnson has the story. The Salt Lake Tribune reports that golf courses across the state used over 23,600 acre-feet of water in 2022. And that's not counting the 30 other golf courses across the state that either don't keep track of their water or refuse to give up that information. One acre foot of water is enough to supply two average households for a year in Utah. Okay, wait, 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 wait. In 2022, the Moab Golf Course used 411 acre-feet of water. For comparison, in the same year, the city of Moab used 1,481 acre-feet of water, according to records from the Utah Division of Water Rights. Rob Jones, the general manager of the Moab Golf Course, says there are ways they could make the irrigation system more efficient, but updating the system would be expensive. He says it would probably cost between one and two million dollars. So it's a irrigation system which is quite old, which is you know becoming a problem, you know, with breaks, leaks, and the biggest problem is the lack of sophistication. A new irrigation system, far more high tech, knows when it should not be watering, how much exactly that the turf needs to maintain something that's healthy. Moab's golf course falls somewhere in the middle in terms of how much water they use compared to other courses in the state. In 2022, the worst offenders were the Copper Club, just south of Salt Lake, which used 1,085 acre-feet, and the Sand Hollow Resort in Hurricane, which used 943 acre-feet. Moab's golf course isn't funded by the city, but it is essentially subsidized. The city allows the golf course to operate on its 242-acre property in exchange for 1.5% of the club's profits each year. In 2022, that came out to be $1,556. We're a nonprofit, and we're usually trying to get to break even. The club isn't really a boost to the city's funds, but Moab City Manager Carly Castle says they see other benefits to keeping it around. Part of the appeal of golf courses for like municipalities is one, it's a you know a recreation um, activity that people care about. But two, people living around the golf course, they have typically have like greater property tax values, and so um, there's a benefit to whatever the jurisdiction is because the property tax is a little higher around those facilities. <clears throat> now that is not the case here for Moab because it's not in the city, and even if it were in the city, we don't have a property tax, so we don't receive that kind of direct benefit. The city's interest in that property is the source protection zone, the water that emanates from that golf course. And so we own that in order to protect that resource. And the golf course is allowed to be on there incidentally because it's not necessarily harmful for the water source. The golf course is adjacent to many of the city's drinking water wells. And Castle says there's not much they can do on that land for fear of jeopardizing the water supply. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend residential development around that area. You start digging, you know, you start grading sewer systems that would go in. The city's wells are close to here. Um, and this is where we draw a lot of our drinking water from. So do you have to follow certain regulations with yeah, fertilizer? So each year, that's part of our lease agreement is, you know, just sending a report of what we're putting on, you know, and what it's for. We live in the same town. We don't want to we don't want to try and poison ourselves. So Jones says he's noticed a shift in attitude about water at the club since he started working there in 1999. 
we've definitely reduced the amount of water we use and it's just a mindset in the past if everything wasn't perfectly green it was a catastrophe and now that mindset's changed and i think that's changed across the board with all golf courses that a little bit of brown is totally acceptable the way that it looks is maybe kind of important oh of course you can't have a product that is dirt out there you would be able to charge something for it so there has to be some balance of it needs to look really good but also you don't need to be going to excess would you ever consider using turf do golf courses do that um they don't really but they do make other compromises in the colder months jones says they dye the grass green instead of planting other types of grass that would be better suited to the early spring conditions do you know how much off the top of your head you pay for water per year kind of all together somewhere in about the 30 to 40,000 range. We have 568 acre feet of water that we purchase each year. You know, so the bummer with that is if there's no water, you've paid for it and you didn't get anything. The golf course buys their water from the Grand Water and Sewer Service Agency. They buy a set amount of water per year, but sometimes the agency falls short on how much water they can provide. In those cases, the golf course can pull water from a Moab City well to irrigate the course. The water from that well is drinking water quality. In the past five years, the amount of water used from that well has varied from five acre feet in 2022 to 182 acre feet in 2017. These records can be found on the Division of Water Rights website. And generally we have excess of 100 to 200 acre feet that we don't use. So I kind of like to think we're a little bit of a savings account for Ken's Lake. Yeah, and something that a lot of golf courses are like spokespeople of golf in Utah have said is like, okay, yeah, we might use a lot of water, but there is a huge economic benefit in terms of like all of the tourists that come. Would you say the golf course has an, a big economic effect on the county or the city? I don't believe that the golf course is necessarily the only reason people come to Moab. Other than, you know, I run 10, 12 tournaments a year where we'll get 200 people from out of town that play in the these events so those people are coming specifically to play golf you know and staying multiple nights in hotels restaurants so on and so forth how many of the people that come here would you say are tourists versus locals we're probably in about the 65 percent are tourists it's definitely one of those cool businesses where locals get to enjoy something that the tourists are basically funding how does that work so the tourists they are paying a premium to play our course and in turn we offer locals a much better rate you know as far as our passes go or local carts things like that so you're getting to play a golf course that we charge 68 dollars for we have a pass that's you pay as little as four bucks a round I don't know if you're familiar with the House bill that was proposed earlier this year that, that would have required golf courses to publish how much water they use every year. It ended up not passing. Um, the golf lobby of Utah was very upset about this, um, and they thought that they were being unfairly targeted. Do you think that that's something that golf courses should have to publish for the public? I don't really see a problem with it, unless you're trying to hide something. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's it's a reality that you use water. This information is already public record, except in cases when a privately owned golf course uses water from a private water supply. But even though it's usually public record, those numbers are still hard to find. One of the state representatives who proposed the bill, Doug Welton, says that's why he wanted to make this change. Welton also teaches high school debate, 
and as part of a project last year, one of his students, who works at a golf course, wanted to find out how much water the course used. And he got a run around from like three or four different people who couldn't tell him, and then they guessed what the number was. And and then over the course of several weeks, he finally got a number, and it ended up being like almost three times what their guess was. Welton was working with lobbyists from the Utah Golf Association to make changes to the bill. And he says during the process, he was led to believe that the bill would pass. And then the golf lobbyist came to me before the session started or right at the beginning of the session. He talked and shared his concerns like, yeah, this is something that's going to have to happen eventually. And, and, and we get it. We just want to make a couple of tweaks here. And so we made a couple of tweaks. And so I thought we were all on board. And then we got to the committee meeting and it was not on board. One legislator who it used to manage a golf course, and his concern was that the public would, would not understand the, the water usage data, and he was in charge of, of a golf course that had spent millions of dollars on upgrading their water systems to be more efficient. We had another legislator that uh, had run a golf course or owned a golf course in the past, and uh, he felt like we were recharging the aquifers, and I think there's some validity to that. Like you know, And that was one of the arguments that, that we made is I just want you to show how much water you're using. If you want to then go and justify to your communities and say, look, we're using X amount of water, but it's going into our aquifer where we can trap it and hold it and it's not evaporating, great. If you are using secondary water, you can say, hey, we're using X amount of dollars, but it is secondary water. That's okay. One of the main criticisms was that the bill targeted golf, but not other sports that also require fields and irrigation, like soccer or baseball. Welton says if he were to run the bill again, he would include all sports that require fields to report their water use. Other recreational facilities, like swimming pools, sometimes come under similar scrutiny in Moab for the amount of water they use. For comparison, the three pools at the Moab Recreation and Aquatic Center take up less than one acre foot of water per year, whereas the golf course generally uses between 300 and 400 acre feet. The outdoor pools at the recreation center are drained every winter, according to the aquatics manager, Stacy Sheets. These numbers only represent a few of the pools in Moab, but based on this, Moab would need to refill over 300 swimming pools every year to match the amount of water used by the golf course. Oh, yeah. Those in favor of keeping golf alive in Utah argue that the community benefits outweigh the burden on our water supply. This is city manager Carly Castle again. So as a recreational amenity, it's valuable, an open space amenity, but it certainly is not providing direct revenue to the city because it's relatively inexpensive. If they charged more for their for the use of the property, we'd certainly get a bigger share or amount of, of whatever that looks like, but I don't mind it being inexpensive for locals to use. Moab Golf Course manager Rob Jones says he definitely sees the benefit for the older people in the community. The older generation that you see out here, they get out and socialize and they have an activity that they're doing. So I think that's a really, that's a really cool benefit. And you don't see that a lot of times where there's a real sense of community among the people that play. What's the regulars scene here, like the locals who come and play often? It's like the coolest demographic ever because it goes from A to Z. We have probably wealthy old dudes that play to young people that scratch together a few nickels to come play around a golf. So when I was talking to Jones at the course, I met one local who plays about three times a week. I enjoy golf because it gets me out here in the beautiful country here in Moab. KZMU listeners might recognize this voice as Richard Codd from Art Talks. And it helps keep me healthy, makes friendships that last for years. 
Do you feel like golf has a future in the Southwest where water is such in such limited supply? It has a future with where it's built. I don't think you want to see any expansion with it. It's like in Moab. This went away. You could never get it back. What about the future of golf in terms of the next generation? Like, are do young people golf today? Are young people today going to golf when they're older? COVID was the biggest boon to golf. Golf definitely was in a bit of a decline. And then once pandemic rolls around and you have to be outdoors doing something, golf totally got a little rebirth. It'll be interesting to see if it has sustainability. Now I think it's, once again, that mindset of it's not a stuffy country club sort of game. This is something that young people do. You have fun, listen to music, drink a beer, play some golf, get out. It's not just a game for old guys in ugly pants. Oh, get in. For KZMU, I'm Emily Arnson. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Commercial properties in Grand County were reappraised this year, and some businesses are shocked by the outcome. According to recent reporting by Sophia Fisher at the Times Independent, many Main Street business owners saw their property values rise by 100% or more. But as she explains, the spike isn't due to new growth. It's because of inflation. Property tax notices were sent out to uh, those who own property in the county just a few weeks ago. And this year, commercial properties were the ones reappraised by Grand County. And as a result, a lot of businesses uh, in the county have seen their property valuations and therefore their taxes just absolutely spike. All right. What kind of spike are we talking about? I know it depends on the actual property, but what are we talking about? Well, at worst, I spoke with McKay Edwards, who's the manager and working partner of Moab Springs Ranch, and he's seeing up to 300 even higher percent uh, property valuation spikes in some of his properties. That's not to say that that's everybody in the county. I Mm -hmm. mean, there's definitely more of a variety, but I I have seen, you know, there's like a whole block of Main Street uh, whose property values all increased by over 100%. So it's definitely um, pretty high for a lot of people. So you have uh, McKay Edwards, um, the working partner of Moab Springs Ranch, quoted in your article as saying that his business uh, will not pencil out if this is the case, right? Yeah, that's definitely one of the themes of the story is, I mean, you know, as folks know, the cost of living or doing business in Grand County is not very small. And uh, this sudden, in some cases, increase in valuations and taxes could potentially uh, spell doom for some some local businesses such as Moab Springs Ranch. I spoke with a few other uh, business owners who, you know, don't necessarily feel that this year's taxes will put them out of business, but they're still worried about this being an ongoing trend. And, you know, indeed, Grand County's property values have been increasing quite a bit, especially since the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, overall, this year alone, uh, real property in the county increased in value by about a third. And almost all of that was from inflationary increases, you know, not increases that are tied to new growth, such as like new buildings or things like that. This definitely seems 
is worrisome for local business owners. How are they gonna are they gonna transfer this these taxes onto, I don't know, whatever they're selling or providing as a business? Yeah, I mean that's what some businesses said they might be forced to do is raise prices or feel like they're pressured to do more business in a year when several property owners, uh, business owners have said that business isn't really great to begin with. Um, but another point too that I, I uh, made in this article is because it's really interesting because so much of the value increase was due to inflation and not new growth, that actually means Grand County isn't really making any more money. Mm. So in theory, taxes are actually going down um, the same degree with other taxpayers who weren't reassessed this year. Um, So I definitely heard a lot of frustration saying that, you know, the county needs to get its budget under control. But if you actually look at the way taxes work in Utah, any increases in value or taxes done by inflation, the county isn't allowed to capture that as new revenue unless they go through this process called truth and taxation, which they haven't done in four or five years. Mm -hmm. Um, So on the other side of things, the county is actually making almost the same amount of money they made last year from property taxes, even though some people are seeing these wicked spikes, which is a really hard disconnect to get your drop your head around as well. Wow. I appreciate you mentioning that. You've been on the tax beat for quite some time, Sophia. It's it's a terrifying beat. It's very complicated, <laughs> and I'm always worried I'm going to say something wrong. So right. thank you, everybody, for bearing with me through this. So taxes are increasing quite substantially for some commercial businesses. You know, they might be feeling like the county must be making all this money off of me when in in, in reality that's not the case it's not the case and you know it's still something I'm wrapping my head around right like are we really seeing decreases with other property owners that actually equal these like insane increases we've seen you know I wasn't able to go out and talk to say like residential property owners Mm -hmm. who whose uh, properties were reassessed a few years ago Mm -hmm. though I do know you know I I did speak with Grand County Treasurer Chris Kaufman who's very helpful and he acknowledged like you know, your taxes should be decreasing or staying the same in intervening years when they're not being reassessed. But of course, like, you'll see small decreases and then one big increase. So he totally gets that there's this, like, sort of asymmetric amount of attention, I guess, put on the increases as opposed to the decreases. And other property owners in the county have been struggling in recent years as well. I mean, Moab City residential properties were reassessed last year and Mm -hmm. Spanish Valley the year before that and and whopping increases each time. So it's certainly um, a struggle, I think, for a lot of locals. I was curious if there was a push to change this five-year assessment cycle, maybe to make things less intense for people. And and he said, you know, he wasn't sure whether or not that was a conversation at the state level. Um, uh, Grand County Assessor Debbie Swayze declined to comment for the story. She said she was kind of um, underwater right now with Board of Equalization or responsibility. So I was not able to get in touch with her. Um, But that's certainly where I want to focus my attention. Is there any push to change the way properties are reassessed Mm -hmm. in the state to make these increases less terrifying for people? Well, thank you for being on this beat, Sophia. It's a complicated one, but we appreciate it. Let's move on to a different article in the Times Independent that you'd like to highlight. Where do you want to take us next? Yeah, something of a, of a bittersweet story um, on A1 about opioid settlements that are that's bringing money to Grand County and folks um, working to help those struggling with substance use disorders. Okay, all right. So the county um, is set to receive some money from opioid settlements over, you know, a few years. Is that right? Definitely. So a settlement that was agreed upon, I think this year had to had to do with uh, distributors and one manufacturer, and that's going to deliver Grand County about four hundred thousand dollars ish over the next fifteen years. Um, so something like fifteen to thirty thousand dollars a year, and then there are more settlements theoretically in the pipeline as well. Okay, and as you explained, the county is um, using that money to fund organizations that address substance use and addiction issues. Is that right? Exactly. So those funds are mandated to be used for something like that. And I mean, you know, Grand County could have tried to make their own program, but uh, County Commissioner Trisha Dean 
made the point that it kind of makes more sense to funnel this money into organizations already doing the work on the ground because mm -hmm. it's, you know, less startup cost and they're already doing amazing work with folks in our community. USARA is one of those um, organizations that's Utah Support Advocates for Recovery Awareness. Um, tell us about them. Yeah, they are set to receive 60% of the money at least this year. And, uh, you know, the commission can opt to do the same funding allocations mm -hmm. in, in future years as well. And yeah, USARA is really incredible. Um, they have on the ground programming like every day of the week for folks in recovery. That's Narcotics Anonymous. They have fitness and yoga groups and different groups for families and, and partners and young people. Um, they have free test strips for fentanyl as well as naloxone, which is an overdose reversal drug, uh, always available at their location. Um, and they have a few events they've been doing as well. They were scheduled to host um, an overdose awareness event uh, yesterday, Thursday, and then they're also going to have a recovery day event tomorrow, Saturday at Swanee Park from 2 to 6 p.m. And that's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be face painting and live music and uh, hose downs from the Valley Fire Department because it's probably going to be kind of hot. Mm -hmm. And uh, I should also mention that uh, USARA also provides services to San Juan County, and so Blanding is actually going to have its first Recovery Day event as well on September 7th um, at Centennial Park in, in Blanding. Oh, wow. Okay. So they're um, extended all the way to San Juan County, too. All right. You also um, mentioned that the Wellness Collective um, received some funding from this opioid set settlement this year as well. Yes. Uh, so the other 40% of funds, at least for this year, will be split equally between the Wellness Collective, which is a new nonprofit providing wellness services like yoga classes to um, all sorts of different people, including those in recovery. Um, and then the other 20% uh, will go towards the Moab Regional Recovery Center, which is offers a whole spectrum of outpatient services for those struggling with opioid use disorder um, and other substance uh, use disorders. So both of those organizations are amazing. And all three of them work together really closely, which is a really cool aspect of these disbursements as well. It's really, truly amazing, like how um, much stronger the recovery community is in our community over the past several years. So um, that's really encouraging to see. Absolutely. And one thing I'd love to mention that didn't make it into the article is uh, I spoke with Lynette Denton and Heidi Thompson, who are both uh, peer recovery coaches at USARA. And they said that community, there were community reaction to things like fentanyl test strips and naloxone has actually improved tremendously in the past mm -hmm. couple of years. They said at the beginning, there was a lot of pushback towards spreading these resources throughout the community, you know, arguments that it was going to make it easier for folks to use drugs or, mm -hmm. or more fun. And they said that they've seen an incredible uh, shift in that perspective from people mm -hmm. and folks are much more open to having those resources available to everybody and including youths um, than they used to be, which is amazing. As an observer, like I do credit those organizations for changing the language that we use around recovery and also, you know, because it is about saving lives. Those those tools like naloxone and fentanyl test strips. Absolutely. And they've been on the ground for years doing this work. So it's amazing to see uh, the benefits being reaped. Okay. So more information on um, the opioid settlement and the uh, organizations that received that funding is in this latest edition of the Times Independent. And finally, Sophia, if I can keep you here for a few more minutes, um, let's go to the inside of the paper um, to the Planning Commission. Um, the headline is that, you know, the chair of the Planning Commission resigned. Yeah, kind of a spicy planning commission meeting on Monday. Um, Emily Campbell, the chair of the planning commission, uh, announced her resignation from the body. She's served on it for about six years and spent about the last three as chair and had about two years remaining on her current term. All right. So what were some of the circumstances in this meeting that you observed and, and then wrote about? Absolutely. Um. So, yeah, just about the resignation, Campbell said that, you know, there were other demands on her time, like family and, and her job. Um, but she also 
made some pretty direct comments about what she said was kind of increasing vitriol in the community. You know, she made the point that the planning commission is a group of volunteers. And she said she's just seen this increasing climate of divisiveness and um, kind of politics, especially like national politics, getting brought into these kind of local conversations. And she just said it's really hard to continue serving as a volunteer when that's kind of what you're getting day in, day out for years on end. So definitely a, a message to the community there. Okay. Campbell, as you mentioned in this article, um, ran for at-large Grand County Commission seat last year. Um, And that was a particularly vitriolic um, election cycle as well. So I'm sure that couldn't have been easy to get through and then continue serving on the Planning Commission. Yeah, absolutely. So before she announced her resignation, um, Campbell um, had some words with Grand County Attorney Stephen Stocks. Can you highlight this for us? Yes. So this was before she announced her resignation Monday. Um, Earlier in the meeting, the Planning Commission was set to discuss the high-density housing overlay, which, as folks know, is a, I think, four-year-old piece of housing legislation that's kind of getting revamped right now because critics are saying it's really not delivering units. Um, And uh, Campbell asked Grand County Attorney Stephen Stocks about conflict of interest rules regarding these HGHO conversations. Um, There is both a member of the Planning Commission and a member of the County Commission who are each developing HGHO projects. Uh, Steve Evers on the Planning Commission and Mm -hmm. Bill Winfield on the County Commission. And um, Campbell made the point during the meeting that uh, Steve Evers had been asked uh, by the attorney not to participate in HGHO discussions, at least as a member of the Planning Commission. He's allowed to weigh in as a citizen or to vote on anything Uh, regarding the HGHO, but so far uh, Winfield has been participating fully in discussion at the county commission level, so she was asking if that was an inconsistency. Um, Stocks said, you know, he could draft a legal memo about it, but he kind of accused her of bringing up this gotcha moment in the middle of a meeting, and Campbell said she didn't appreciate that. Um, And Mm. later on, I spoke with Stocks, and he said he owed Campbell an apology, Um, and he kind of explained these differing rules on the different commissions. He said it's confusing because, you know, when you call it a planning commission and a county commission, you think that those two bodies are the same thing. But he said, actually, because planning commissioners are appointed by the commission, not elected by the public, there are kind of more stringent rules around things like impartiality and and conflict of interest rules. Mm -hmm. He also said that a big responsibility of planning commissioners is to interpret code and not primarily to set policy, which is the main um, kind of wheelhouse of the county commission. So for that reason, there are also um, kind of much stricter rules around folks having a potential bias or the appearance of bias. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting. They did end up talking about the HGHO, and that will go to the county commission in the future weeks. Um, but I think it's an interesting, interesting discussion to be had for sure. And I'm certainly keeping an eye on it. Yeah, because it seems like um, there's so much to explore in those statements. There's a lot of fodder for future reporting if you stay up on it, Sophia. But lastly, you know, you said the HGO revisions that the Planning Commission made um, did get voted ahead. Is there anything to highlight about what's coming to the County Commission for consideration from the planning body? Yeah, absolutely. So they, the Planning Commission did ultimately vote to forward a positive recommendation for a bunch of HGHO revisions that have been discussed at plentiful mm-hmm. County Commission meetings. So if anyone wants to look at them, you can go to the August 1st meeting or the August 15th meeting for background. Um, the one thing the Planning Commission did not vote to recommend favorably was a proposed income cap, mm-hmm. which would apply to self-employed workers uh, who cannot prove that most of their clientele kind of live in Grand County. So mm-hmm. if a self-employed worker can prove at least 75% of their clientele lives here, then they're good to go. If they can't do that, then they could also alternately prove five years of residency and prove their income is um, under a certain cap. I think it's 160% of area and media income, about Mm $125,000. And the Planning Commission thought that that cap seemed, A, kind of arbitrary and also really difficult to enforce. And uh, Campbell actually 
uh, herself made the point that she thought it would exclude folks who otherwise would essentially fit into the program. But for people who want to get around that restriction, it wouldn't be hard to. So mm-hmm. she didn't think it was excluding the right people and would maybe be excluding some people who should fit into the program. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some really interesting points made about that. It should come before the county commission, I believe, their second meeting in September. So for a public hearing and eventually a vote. And again, it's been discussed for several months. Uh, there are a variety of other revisions um, besides that proposed income cap that folks should certainly take a look at. Okay. Wow. Um, thank you so much for giving us a breakdown of this planning commission meeting. Um, they're not always exciting, but when they are, they are very exciting. So I would agree with that. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Last year, the Grand County High School mountain biking team finished their season undefeated. They won the state championship and finished at the top of the Utah League, which, as Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News reports, has over 7,000 student athletes. In the latest edition of The Sun, Harford asked, so what makes Moab's mountain biking teams so skilled year after year? So I didn't know a lot about the Utah mountain biking scene or really why we have these teams. I mean, when I was in high school, we didn't have a mountain biking team. Like, I'd never heard of this before coming to Moab. And not only do we have a mountain biking team here, but they're incredibly good. And Mm. so I wanted to talk to both the high school coach and the middle school coach about um, their coaching mentality and why they think the team is so good. I think there's a lot of things we can infer, like Mm -hmm. Moab has these amazing trails and obviously our local teams get to train on them. So what I learned is that last year, the high school team finished their season undefeated. They won the state championship and finished at the top of the Utah League, which has over 7,000 student athletes. So the Utah League, which is part of the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, is the largest state league in the entire country. Um, So usually these school teams are giant, like hundreds of kids. Our school teams, the high school has 21 kids and the middle school team has 19 riders this year. Um, So definitely not as big, but our kids who compete are super, super good. So John Knight, who is the head coach of the high school team, said that he thinks Moab's team is so skilled because they spend a lot of time focusing on the fun aspect. Like, he really just wants kids to enjoy being outside and to build confidence on their bikes. And so they practice a couple times a week practices are usually at the brands trails north of town and a lot of the kids are super into biking and so they bike to practice (laughs) wow so they're getting in a ton of miles um monday is like the fun day where kids get to ride the trails for fun tuesday practices are what knight calls torture tuesday with lots of (laughs) interval training um thursday is all about long distance miles and then they have one weight training class off the bikes And then before races, the teams do a community dinner, and they also take it easy on the practice miles. So they don't have that many races. They just raced in Manti on August 19th, and then on September 2nd, they're off to Cedar City. Then they're going to Beaver City, also in September, Eagle Mountain at the end of the month, and then back to Cedar City for the state championships in October. Courses are usually five or six miles. The freshman and JV teams do two laps. Varsity girls and JVA boys do three laps, and varsity boys do four. Wow. And so 
there is this individual aspect to racing, um, but also the teams will place overall. And so uh, both Knight and Greg Heitkamp, who coaches the middle school team, said that they really try to stress this camaraderie and team aspect of it. Um, like they want the kids to stay and cheer each other on, mm-hmm. even though that makes for really long race days. Mm-hmm. But everybody stays and everyone is really into it. And so, yeah, it's very exciting. So this is the season, as you just explained, this is mountain biking season Mm -hmm. for competition, at least. And it's all about racing. Like, are there more technical races than others? What's that like? So a lot of the courses differ from each other, but really it's about um, the endurance aspect of it. And so, yeah, as long as the kids are doing the miles quickly, then they'll place really well in the Mm -hmm. races. But sometimes that is hard to do miles quickly like yeah. there are technical aspects to these trails yeah. um, but none of them are like crazy hard it's more kind of just about where you can find speed in Manti the team took first place in their division and then also a little bit less than half the team placed on the podium which is first to fifth place wow okay so do the coaches expect to have another season where they're sort of cleaning up in the state Yes, they do, but they also stress that winning isn't super important to them. It's more that the kids have fun and they make friends with each other and build confidence on their bikes. Knight also said that the team wouldn't be possible without support from the community. Um, Mountain bikes can be really expensive, and with, with a lot of community support, the team is able to sponsor kids who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford the sport, which is really cool. That's good to know because, you know, like other sports that might have a high cost of entry, like skiing, or like anything where you need a lot of gear um, that doesn't make it as accessible to everyone like a different sport would, like soccer, for example. Right, exactly. Yeah, so the coaches are really trying to make this sport accessible, like you said. There's more to be said about the Moabs and News this week. Uh, Where do you want to take us next, Allie? Yeah, so this one requires a little bit of background. So as a local newspaper, we rely a lot on our readers sending us emails saying like, you know, I'm working on this cool project or I know this person mm-hmm. doing this thing. Um, and so last week we got this email from this woman named Brianna DeSanctis. She is hiking the American Discovery Trail and coming right through Moab. And she sent us an email because she will be the first solo woman to finish the trail. And she spent a week in Moab preparing for the desert trek ahead. Wow. So... Yeah, I reached out to her because I have no idea what this trail is. Yeah, I don't know either. The American Discovery Trail connects the east and west coasts of the United States, and it brings hikers from Delaware all the way to California. That's a little bit over 5,000 miles, and hikers are traveling through like scenic and historic trails, but also metropolitan areas uh, like Moab. And national, a lot of national parks, um, and they're kind of seeing everything that the country has to offer. So yeah, the trail actually does come right through Moab. The Utah stretch is pretty brutal. Um, <laughs> it's very exposed. It's 593 miles, wow. and a lot of the hikers have to um, like they do these giant stretches between being able to resupply and they also have to rely on the utah coordinator for the american discovery trail who is this man named bob palin and he drops a a cache of water every 20 miles or so wow yeah because otherwise um there's not a lot of places on the trail to be able to get water and so Mm -hmm. yeah you have to hike with like up to three gallons of water at a time which is very heavy but you know you 
gotta do what you gotta do gotta gotta (laughs) have it um but yeah so the utah trail is split up by the from the colorado border to height um it's 174 miles and that's the part that comes right through moab you follow the cocopelli trail Mm. and then down cane creek road to hurrah pass to the lockhart basin trail to Canyonlands, and then into bears ears Mm. then to height and then you go height to boulder boulder to circleville circleville to beaver and beaver to the nevada state line oh wow so this is a huge trail how long is it how long is it total yeah so total it's a little bit over five thousand miles but um this woman who i chatted with is kind of doing a bunch of different segways so by the end she'll have done like around six thousand miles Mm. she's been walking the trail for a year and a half um and she's hoping she'll have it done by the end of the year but she's not really sure she Uh has been out on the trail for a year and a half yes so she's not taking breaks going back to work going back home she is out there Mm -hmm. wow yeah the biggest breaks she has are like she was staying in moab for a week to kind of prepare and you know when she does these rest weeks she writes a column in this local main newspaper so she was writing her column and she was doing things like chatting with me Mm -hmm. and other news outlets um and then also she said she has to spend a lot of time at the post office yeah. um, trying to figure out how to drop supplies and how to get things to yeah. her on time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, she's thinking about buying a new backpack, which is kind of a big deal. And, you know, she has to figure out, like, where she's going to get the new pack and also mm-hmm. how she'll get rid of the old one. Wow. So, yeah, when she's walking the trail, she averages 20 miles a day. Now, did you talk to her? Obviously, logistics are an issue and something she has to think about. But, like, what did she say about walking this much and, like, through all this, like, variety of terrain, especially here in Utah? Yeah. She said walking uh, can feel very freeing, just realizing, you know, that you can walk places. And we Mm -hmm. kind of talked about how Moab sometimes feels like you can bike and walk around town, but usually you need a car to get to Mm -hmm. these other like recreation areas um she totally disagreed i mean she's been on her feet for a year and a half Uh um but yeah the biggest challenge in utah so far has been the heat Mm. so she's been in colorado and those trails took her like over the continental divide Mm. and she was at altitude for a while like pretty much always at eleven thousand feet and spent july at altitude and then she started coming down in elevation and making her way toward grand junction and like early mid-August and she said she thought oh it's getting real mm-hmm. so she started getting really hot for mm-hmm. a few days on Cocopelli she was dealing with heat exhaustion mm-hmm. like she found herself shivering in the middle of the day Uh-oh. and um, just she would take her sleeping pad and put it like over her head and so she's recovered from heat exhaustion but still has to deal with the heat especially as she goes down into Canyonlands. How does she you know keep herself stay- safe? It's a lot of relying on these trips coordinators okay um so there's one for every state and also she is pretty self-sufficient too she's been doing this for so long that she kind of has like a routine now um utah is a pretty easy place to find places to camp especially Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of public lands and um, national parks but then also she can chat with the trail coordinators about good camping places and like where water drops are going to be and Mm -hmm. things like that 
Wow, that's so fascinating. So this trail has trail coordinators to mm-hmm. make sure that people can actually safely go across the country, especially as you explained in places like Utah, where there's not necessarily natural fresh water the whole mm-hmm. way across the state. Right. Wow. Yeah. Um, and also these, this trail connects a bunch of like not very popular trails and Mm -hmm. so she said she actually hasn't seen nearly any other hikers or runners especially while she's been in Utah. Something cute that she said that Mm -hmm. I put in there is that she really really loves Moab. Um, She said the community is really great and she's been loving the library and especially the public swimming pool and our recreation facilities. She said she's really happy to be here and everybody that she's met has been absolutely wonderful. Allison Harford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.